and welcome everybody to episode two of Too Brad For You In Conversation. Joining me today is uh, Dr. John Gilliard. So John was the co-supervisor on my PhD. He invited me over to his home uh, to record this. As such, you will hear some house noises. We were in John's study, but you know, the heater goes on and off. There might be some footsteps from the family. Um, water pipes, things like this, regular home noises. It's not too distracting, um, but just so you know, that is what's going on. That was the setting. Um, but like I said, John was the co-supervisor on my PhD, so he's a veterinarian and studies parasites, gut parasites mainly in livestock. Again, mainly, but he will get into that near the end. It was a great conversation. We talked a little bit about how he got to where he is. He was reluctant to give career advice, but there's there's some nuggets to be to be gleaned from there. Uh, we we talked about Twitter. Uh, he's got a pretty unique take, I think, um, about Twitter, and especially from an academic standpoint. Um, I know in my time in academia, many. Um, professors, researchers, whatnot, were kind of reluctant to use Twitter, didn't see the value in it, but I think if you hear John's take on it, um, that might change. Uh, we touched on academics doing outreach, uh, which was kind of interesting if in comparison to the conversation I had with Jay Ingram um, on the first episode of Too Brad For You in Conversation. We went a little inside baseball talk on uh, grad school, but again, I think it's it's interesting for people who don't know anything about research, uh, maybe a bit of an insight into the lifestyle and stuff. And then, yeah, like I said, at the end, we get into the parasite stuff, the good stuff. Um, we dis discussed a lot about One Health, so the idea that animal-human environmental health is all linked. It's sort of a big thing in the veterinary medical, especially parasitology communities. Um, we talked about treating human parasites uh, and some of the issues that are around that. If you didn't know, there was issues around that. And the role of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in that, as they are playing a pretty big part in that. So some interesting stuff about research at the end. But like I said, I want to thank John for having me over to his house. He's a really great guy. He was a great supervisor. Um, and just super fun to talk to. Um, I really, always really, really enjoy catching up with him when I'm back in Calgary. And it was lovely uh, of him to have me over to his house and to agree to be on this episode. Uh, so I hope you enjoy. As per usual, we got the freak motif bringing us in. And then it's on to my conversation with Dr. John Gilliard. Enjoy. goes blank yeah so what i remember i think to talk about is the big question well good way to start i want to say thanks for having me over 
Thanks for having me in no, your home to do this. Yeah, and no. thanks for agreeing to do it. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. You're cool. um, a bit of a guinea pig. Yes. In, this. <laughs> in more ways than one. In this. But um, I think, yeah, maybe just to give people a bit of a sense. You're originally from the UK. Yeah. So why don't you explain your background in mm. terms of what brought you here to mm. Canada? Okay. Well, I'm from the UK, the north of England, just north of Manchester. I went to the University of Liverpool to study veterinary medicine and graduated as a veterinarian in 19... Uh, a long time yeah, ago, sure. uh, many, many years ago. And I worked in general practice as a vet for three years. And then uh, I kind of enjoyed that, but couldn't see myself doing it for another 40 years. Right. So I was always interested in science and research. So I thought, well, maybe uh, explore that. And actually, I actually thought I was going to be a pathologist, a veterinary pathologist. Okay. Uh, but people dissuaded me from that. I said, oh, no, you should do a PhD, do research. So I just toured around the vet schools in the UK and uh, ended up in Glasgow studying parasitology. So it's an interesting example of where you go with your careers because I had absolutely no interest in parasitology hmm. whatsoever before that point. And the only reason I went to Glasgow because I liked the people in the place. I thought, <laughs> this is good. And so I went there and did a PhD in parasitology and then did a postdoc. Uh, and then at that point I switched from parasitology into more basic science of C. elegans, a free living model organism, looking at gene expression and C. elegans, because I thought that was a, a good way to understand worms, because I haven't talked yet about the fact I work on parasitic worms. Mm -hmm. And so spent five or six years working in very basic science in, in this model organism uh, in the genetics department in Glasgow, and then came on a Wellcome Trust Travel Fellowship to Calgary. Uh, again, complete happenstance. I knew a professor, Jim McGee, in the medical faculty here who worked on this model organism, met him at a meeting, and I was looking for somebody to host a fellowship to travel abroad, and he said, well, why don't you come to Calgary? So I looked up on the map where Calgary was. <laughs> so, okay, that looks all right. So, and then, and then uh, ended up in Calgary. So I did two years of that, and then went back to a faculty position in Glasgow, in the vet school in Glasgow, studying parasites and then after seven years of that is this this is going on a long time this explanation yeah, fine, yeah. but after seven years of that um uh i the heard a rumor they were setting up a vet school in calgary because there wasn't one at that point uh and jim mcgee actually works in the medical faculty emailed me and said you should apply for a job here so i kind of just emailed and didn't hear anything for months and months and months and then eventually got a call from the the then founding dean Alistair Cribb, who said, why don't you come up for an interview? So I flew out not knowing anything about the place and actually having no intention of taking a job. I just got a free flight and I <laughs> thought, it might be quite interesting to see this new vet school. And, but then when I got here and saw the potential and, and remembered how much we liked being in this part of the world, I thought, oh, we might do this. And so we ended up coming out and got a faculty position here and stayed ever since. So I've been here 10 years now. That was a very long answer to that question, wasn't no, it? No, no, I mean, it's good. I think it's like, I mean, we've had conversations about this before, but you said it right there. It's like, you never know where your career will take you. Yeah. And so you kind of just, I went to Glasgow because I like the people. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And and most of these big career decisions, which, which turn out in hindsight to be big career decisions, at the time, actually, certainly in my case, I've never really thought of them as a big decision at the time right it's it's 
being a decision to do something which seemed like a good idea at the time, mm-hmm. which then leads to something else. And so, you know, that kind of grand forward planning has never really been a strong point. Right? So do you think that that's just you, your I style? Yeah, or do you, do you wonder yeah. if like other people... Because I mean, yeah. I feel like that's sort of the mentality that I take in my position yeah. is I'm going in a direction that I know I enjoy and opportunities will present themselves along the way and you have to be ready to sort of jump into those but you seem I don't know I feel like you're downplaying it a little bit no, like I no I just I just kind of yeah, ended up probably, here ended up there yeah there's probably an element of that but I think the problem is and you know with the graduate training program we've got in Calgary the horse parasite interactions program we do a big thing of career advice and mm-hmm. get people in talk about careers the only problem with that is I think it's a good thing to do but the only problem is with it is it's very sm- easy to be smart after the event so right. you speak to somebody like me and say well you've got a 10 year faculty position and you've got a job you enjoy how did you get there uh, there's, a, there's a kind of I don't know tendency to say well I did this this and this mm-hmm. but I Yes, in a parallel universe, it could have gone horribly wrong, right? And you never know, right? So, so there's a kind of bias to to asking people those questions, right? Because you're only asking the people who actually it worked out for. So, right. So I don't know how much it was just pure chance, right? And you never know. I mean, you work hard and you do certain things better than others, and some things work out, but. Yeah, to the extent to which you can engineer it with a plan, I don't know. But but certainly I've never projected like 20 years into the future. So if I do this, this is going to get me there. Yeah. It's been more, this seems like a sensible or something. Maybe you go on gut instinct as well. Yeah. Right? Is, is you kind of do, you know, some people say do the pros and cons list. and Right. Uh, but actually you do that and then your gut instinct gives you the decision anyway, right? I tend yeah. to think, so. It seems, it would seem odd too to like, you know, if you're planning 20 years in advance, that's yeah. basically saying that you know yep. exactly who you are going to be exactly. and what you want to do yeah, yeah. right now, and yeah. that will not change. Yeah. yeah. You know, if if you think about, it, I heard I've heard it put one way that it's, you know, if you were five years old and you knew you wanted to be an astronaut or something, yeah. and you get there and you realize, well, no, those are those were the dreams of a five year old. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it now? You know. And I, I guess that's what happened to me in reality because when I was about 12, I wanted to be a veterinarian right and so and and actually well you did that i did it and i worked it and I, it was okay actually but it wasn't a passion for me as a day-to-day existence beyond a certain point right so yeah. so that's probably part of it a lot happens over that period of your life and you know other things kick in so yeah so when you plan too far ahead i don't know and then and then as i say when i did a postdoc i went really into basic basic science mm-hmm. and that was good at the time and now i've come back a little bit more to applied science and and so that's good for me now kind of thing so there's yeah these changes happen but mm-hmm. some of them are they're not really planned i guess is the point yeah so we're not going to look we're not going to hold your feet to the fire then for career advice no for any it's not, not, it's, it's not advisable. i mean i don't know how many i think we probably have some listeners that are graduate students or phd yeah. students yeah. or you know on that road but yeah we won't uh, no no but I th- we'll I save th- it for an advice yeah, podcast yes, we'll do exactly. a- <laughs> but the other, the other thing to say about it though is and it's a bit of a cliche but it's true i'm sure that you've just got to do what you really enjoy right mm-hmm. and if you can do that 
the, you'll make some kind of success of it at some level, right? And then it'll lead to other things. Yeah. And it may not go the path you imagine, but but there's nothing worse than doing stuff if you're really not into it, right? And, yeah. and many people do that, and I don't think you ever really thrive if you're doing that. No, and that seems like the worst possible position to be in, like on a day-to-day, if you imagine yeah, yeah, yeah. hating your job and having yeah. to go in every day. Um, I'll jump over. We've had many conversations about this and you might know where I'm going now but you you're not going to give career advice but I know (laughs) at one point you were advising students and academics to get on Twitter all right yeah yeah and I just I you know I I enjoy your take on Twitter and I checked your following before I came over today and you're blowing me out of the water you got like (laughs) 1300 followers I think yeah which is quite modest but yeah when you when you tweeted about worms and sheep, so I guess that's yeah quite a lot, really. Well, so this is For my topic. <laughs> this is my question: How did you do? No, <laughs> um, but I mean, you you did seem like I remember when I was still in the lab working. I I think we kind of got into Twitter at the same yeah, time. Yeah. And you were one of the reasons I you did. I, you yeah. know, I was always interested in the medium and that kind of thing, and I thought it was cool. But you seem to really push it, and I know that you got pushback from yeah, still some do, of your yeah, colleagues yeah. And, yeah. and students and stuff. So what do you think? Like, why? I guess you could explain, you know, what it is you like about it, and why you think maybe that somebody, some of these people, are resistant to it. And I guess I'm interested in it too. From an academic like you know you twitter makes sense for journalists or celebrities or something but as an academic as a researcher yeah what drew you to it yeah well other than the facetious comment about short attention span and all that (laughs) stuff which is probably partially (laughs) true (laughs) yeah but but yeah i i think i mean i you know i think it's a really efficient useful way to stay connected that that Mm -hmm. in a nutshell is my take on it and so We're to all, stay connected to your colleagues or the, the research both, community? Both. News, general, what's going on, current affairs in mm-hmm. your field of science, uh, connected to colleagues on a personal basis. I mean, we're, we're inundated by so much information right mm-hmm. and we're all we're all in that problem all the time is you can't read everything mm-hmm. you can't find everything um, as a scientist you know you want to try and keep abreast of your field and there's different methods of doing that including very systematic literature searches which we do but then you never read half of it because there's not physically enough time and well, you never read 90 percent of it actually because yeah. there's, there's never enough time in the day uh so what is the solution to that and twitter offers something of a solution i mean it's, it's like anything it's not perfect by a long mm. way and that's where it gets the criticism right because mm-hmm. i think some of the criticism of twitter is almost like yeah let's focus on all the problems with it rather than acknowledging its value right and so so what i you know i think it's a really efficient way so so you know i think i've said this to you before when i look at the the twitter stream if you tailor your following you're tailoring it to things you're interested in mm-hmm. and so in a way you're screening out a lot of noise of information just by virtue of your twitter following right or, right. or the ones you follow uh, and therefore, I find if I get up in the morning or I'm still in the coffee queue or whatever I'm doing, if I've got two or three minutes, four or five minutes, and I'm looking through that stream and clicking on links, I'm getting information quite rapidly, mm-hmm. tailored to things that, that I think I want to know about. Um, and then the, the flip side of it is 
how do you as a scientist get your message out there uh, make other people interested in what you're interested in uh, even let people know you exist mm-hmm. right beyond a certain narrow spectrum uh, people spend an awful lot of time doing outreach activities of this and the other actually it's a very efficient way of doing it right because right. you know it's if you've got you know over a thousand followers most of them are not paying much attention to what you're doing but a few of them are at different times and right. um, yeah so that's that, that all of those things right? yeah I mean that's what it, like I that's what drew me to it too was that I can curate sort of incoming information yeah you know and yeah. have it right there you know I've I you know people will say there's problems with that you know you live in your echo chamber but it, in a conversation we had you're for you that's not a problem no, no. you're in the parasitology yeah. sheep worm echo chamber but yeah great that's where you want to be yeah, exactly. And I think it depends what your objective is with Twitter, right? And right. So, so the objectives I've just given, I think the echo chamber is an advantage because mm-hmm. it's an efficiency of garnering information uh, which is relevant to me, I think. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, if, if I was using it to t- look at an objective view of the world, right, across the board, it would not be a very sensible thing to think you're doing right because <laughs> it's really not it's not yeah the, the, you know i don't know many people i meet randomly who, who look at pictures of worms and sheep and yeah and, yeah, yeah and look at you know the genetics of obscure organisms or look at drug resistance in a particular 99.999 percent of the population are completely disinterested in that yeah. right uh but um if you're aware of that echo chamber, then it doesn't matter, right? It's an efficient thing. So, yeah. so I think, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, the, I mean, there's lots of criticisms of Twitter, isn't there, of, of people say it's all full of rubbish and nonsense, and but that's who you're following, right? If you right. choose to follow people who tweet rubbish and nonsense, yeah. that's what you get. And, uh, you know, we've discussed this before, it, is, it's a little bit analogous to, I mean, there's no difference between Twitter as a medium or social media as a medium in everyday life. As we, you know, we yeah. were chatting the other day and saying, like, if you sit in a bar with a group of people who have racist, sexist, whatever views mm-hmm. uh, and engage, then that's what you're surrounded by. If you yeah, sit that's in a what bar you're gonna hear. That's what you're and, gonna see. and have conversations with people who don't have those views, that's what you see there. If you, if you walk into you know, a bar in Glasgow and it's a Rangers uh, supporters club and you go in with a Celtic scarf and start cheering for Celtic, you might have a few problems. Yeah, you might where, get a bottle yeah. chucked at so, you. In a way, I mean, I'm not trivialising it because there are problems with stalking yeah. and, and, I mean, it happens, but uh, a large part of it is who you follow and, and how you interact with that group. Well, and I think you nailed, like, the, you, what's your objective? Yeah. You know, what is your purpose for being on that medium? What are you yeah. trying to get out of it or what are you trying to put into it? Right. So I yeah. think that's really important. And I, yeah. and I, you know, I hadn't really thought of it in that way because I guess in the way that I'm using it now, it is I'm following a lot more journalists um, and news. Yeah. Trying to get a, a, yeah. a wider view, and you do see some negative things, or you see a lot of articles being written about negative experiences that people have had. Yeah. And I, it's nice to you know you kind of reset my thought my thought process on it. It's like, well, what is your objective? You know, like, and should you 
you know, obviously we need some people out there pushing certain issues and talking about things, but those are the ones that are sticking their neck out. So yeah, they're going to, yeah. but do you think that this is why like colleagues and stuff in, in academia or whatever are reluctant to use Twitter? Do you think it's like they just don't understand it or they see the negative and they're like, I don't want to be in that space. Well, it sounds, it sounds, it doesn't sound like arrogance or patronizing, but I think a lot of people just don't understand it. Yeah. Not because not capable of understanding it, but they just never bothered to make the yeah, effort. To it's understand a new thing, it. yeah. <laughs> it's that thing, right? And and I think that you know, um, we, you know, you get some people, and you can look at their profiles of if all they ever tweet is about certain messages, and certain scientists do that on Twitter. They'll want to put out information about their latest paper or talk or prizes one of their students got. Mm-hmm. If that's ninety percent of their content you know that's clearly it's almost like a propaganda machine for that person yeah or they've been uh, yeah. told by their pr department yeah, you or, need to yeah, tweet do, more yeah it's, it's almost like yes this is a good thing to go yeah. and and, that, and again it's analogous to everyday life if you go in a bar i keep using a bar i must say something about yeah. <laughs> if you go in a bar and, and and just talk at somebody about your stuff yeah it's not a particularly productive way to go about when well, they're going to tune you right. out yeah exactly quick. exactly so so again it's how you use it and it isn't actually that much different to everyday life when mm-hmm. you just use the same principles i mean the other thing about objectives is you can use it for different objectives is that if if you want to understand somebody else's point of view mm-hmm. who isn't your point you can choose to follow those people mm-hmm. i mean i mean we i don't think either of us are great fans of the current president of the united states <laughs> <laughs> nope. so, i'll go on the record yeah, and say but, that <laughs> but, but, but actually you know i've actually specifically followed some of bunch of Trump supporters right yeah. for a while yeah then, just to sort then of stopped see. after a while yeah. but what it's kind of interesting because what you see then is what message is coming out mm-hmm. uh, and you don't necessarily need to engage it in that particular instance no and therefore you've you've explored and, and it does make you think about things so you can yeah. have a very specific objective and use it for that for a while right yes yeah. So, yeah yeah um, but for me scientifically it's, it's good because you know your your own research field is a bubble in itself, right? Right. And so what you can also use it for is if you start to f- follow people in fields which overlap but are not totally within your field, then you start to get information mm-hmm. that you wouldn't otherwise efficiently explore garden. the boundaries right. of your... Yeah, yeah. and so, yeah. so I see scientific papers which I would probably not pick up normal it's a bit more the lateral thinking thing right and and come up with new ideas because i'm following on the periphery of, of what i do and then it also even with the outreach stuff uh as i say i don't do a lot of direct interaction with farmers and things like that although i work on agricultural livestock parasites a lot of the time uh i do a little bit but not a tremendous amount but i follow a lot on twitter and some of them follow me and actually i've been to meetings and i've known people in those meetings simply because we followed each other on Twitter. Yeah. So there's all these different advantages to it, mm-hmm. uh, which are cumulative, I think. But you know, you've got to, you've, you've almost got to engage with it in mm-hmm. order to do it, rather than just spend a week tweeting for a while and say, "Ah, oh, this is not good." Right. So. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. It's a cum- cumulative thing, mm-hmm. and it sort of grows. Do, have you? Do you notice though that like when you i don't know if you have the notifications on when it tells you when new people follow you or something like this but like do you notice that certain things that you've done or certain yeah. things that you've engaged in have increased your no you the, haven't followed no, it at no. all well, so the following things are mystery to me 
right? <laughs> no, I really don't understand how you get followers, right? Really, I mean, because I go. Well, through, you've got a I know, few of them. No, but the thing is, I, you go through a period and like I go through a few weeks, and every day there's a few extra followers that just keep yeah. popping up. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to, through like a desert, your doldrums of followers. Yeah. Where there's no, there's nothing. Yeah, it's yeah. like you know, and then then there's another, and and I've never correlated it to anything at all okay because that was what i was wondering because i can see sometimes i'll see certain you know i either post about something or i post something that i've written that obviously is in somebody's field yeah and they then latch on and you get a few people here or there but i was wondering like i'm not saying like yeah do you know the secret to get (laughs) but i'm just wondering if you found like that there were certain topics that sort of really hit it off in the in the yeah in your world or whatever yeah I I guess yeah I don't know really I mean I, I, I'm trying to think now I know there's some fans out there of your <laughs> landscape photos oh yeah that you, that's, that's right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah sort of uh, pictures well that's a bit of nostalgia for the UK right yeah sort of pastoral images of the UK <laughs> Lake District and Scottish mountains and UK and then actually sometimes you'll t- tweet something like that and you do get a lot of engagement there yeah but actually uh, actually that's another thing you've hit on actually is that that even within a a a bubble of people you have more in common with some than others so for example in the world of parasitology right as a research discipline Mm -hmm. uh on twitter if somebody also likes hiking or something as well Mm -hmm. right and you're doing a bit of that and they also like this and that then then i've met people at meetings and you've immediately got more of a connection with that person and you've only met them a couple of times mm-hmm. you know, at an international meeting but actually it smoothed the conversations because oh, you're almost like you know the person you've got because you know a bit about their... their hobbies and their life a little bit mm-hmm. and, and and so actually it kind of smooths the communication for people when you meet them so I, yeah, so so for me, it's just I don't know. It's it's a, and it doesn't take much time, and yeah, I use it to find news links, and so yeah, it's a really efficient way of, of going about. So there's a couple things that kind of came up there. For the outreach thing, obviously, I'm I'm interested in yeah. you know science outreach, science journalism is now what I'm doing, but the importance of it from the academic side, because this is another conversation that I've seen when I was in academia, yeah. is the importance of outreach. And Twitter or not, you know, whether yeah. it's Twitter or something yeah. else, the how important do you think that is? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It is, and I, I don't really know. But you you do go out of your way to do we events. Do, yeah, we do and some, you, you yeah. make a point yeah. of it yeah. to do it. Yeah, I think there's, there's a whole variety of different aspects to it. Um, and there's different types of outreach, of course, right? Mm-hmm. So some colleagues do outreach without even thinking about it because the nature of their research means they're connecting with stakeholder groups. Yeah. You know, um, you can imagine in medicine, it's patient groups with certain diseases or yeah, yeah. veterinary side, it may be particular livestock groups or all those kind of things. So th- that's one kind of outreach. But, but, but then there's the other kind, which is more just general yeah. science education and mm-hmm. outreach like that. And so... I do both of those things, I guess. Um, but the debate goes on in academia. It's very time-consuming, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and actually, nobody's rewarded for it. Um, Not so, directly, so I guess. No, no, and actually, you do it off the side of your desk kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the universities are, are very keen for people to engage in that. 
but the flip side of that is there's, there isn't a, a reward mechanism to incentivize people to do it. So and the there's no people, real metric to measure no, it, though, no, either. Absolutely, like, yeah. If it's working or not. No, exactly. You can measure the quantity you do, but you can't measure if it's good, bad, or indifferent, mm-hmm. or effective, or, or whatever. And I think that a lot But what of people, do you think the goal is, then? Like, if you were able to measure it, what do you think the goal of it would be? Just like a general elevation of people's awareness of your work or you know uh they would be more inclined to vote politicians that care about yeah. basic research yeah i mean the biggest single cross-cutting i guess purpose is to um increase the awareness of evidence and the importance of an evidence base and scientific investigation throughout everyday life including if it's right from political decisions mm-hmm. through to you know making decisions about your own health or you know whatever it is and i think that uh, you know it's surprising how many people don't have an evidence-based approach to life right yeah and, and so their beliefs their beliefs yeah, the way you said yeah then it's like yeah it's like, i was trying to be i don't know diplomatic don't know. It about just, it am i being too diplomatic no but, but, but there's, there's a lot of uh, yeah a lot of people just don't think that way right mm-hmm. and actually it doesn't necessarily map onto intelligence either no yeah highly highly intelligent people who don't have belief systems based on logical deduction and evidence mm-hmm. right? and the thing about science is as as anybody in the basis knows nothing special about it it's just having an objective view of the world and yeah. and, and using approaches to figure things out which are objective right yeah. and that's really all it is but and so the whole science outreach thing is is i think in terms of academics doing it a lot of it is about encouraging that in whatever milieu you're in right so for me it could be in the livestock community but it could also be through the more general population and, and using what i do as a, a platform to do it right so yeah um yeah i just wanted to it's like well yeah i can see academics being well that's not my job to no, try and convince yeah. people yeah. that they should you know yeah. trust evidence or not yeah. even trust evidence but critically look at things and you know and and yeah go about that go about life or whatever that way you know yeah it's bigger picture stuff though isn't it because although it's not my job per se my job description i've got a job description i don't think mm-hmm. not read it for a while <laughs> <laughs> i forgot exactly what it is but i don't think science outreach is in there right i'm mm-hmm. pretty sure and i certainly wasn't recruited to do that um and actually as i said there's no immediate reward for it i mean in terms of any promotion i've had in the past or financial increases and merit increment or you know it's never you know it's just not a factor right and many argue it should be Mm -hmm. but in terms of why you do it then i think it's more the bigger picture that you have to believe if you are working in science the whole only sustainable future for it is a society supports it Mm -hmm. right you know the very virtue of somebody like me being paid to do what i do actually depends on society actually valuing. believing and valuing in, in in that whole scientific enterprise right and mm-hmm. research and more academic approaches to things so so if if society disconnects from that then people like me are in trouble right mm. so so you could argue although it's very big picture on long term and indirect 
it's very much in my own self-interest to do it. I mean, not from a day-to-day -day basis, but in terms of the the, yeah. the sphere I operate in, we're only sustainable as long as society buys into it. So if, if you take the opposite view, like say, well, no academics should be doing this, then you're in trouble, right? right. Because because why would society buy into it if they never hear from anybody or know what it's the you know it's a classic ivory tower right yes yeah, yeah, yeah as if it's the ivory tower and nobody, nobody knows what goes on in there then right um why would you ever support it so so i think it's more that indirect thing mm -hmm. uh in terms of reasons but the real reason i suppose i did today is it's quite enjoyable to do and um you like to feel that you've got some fractional relevance in the world <laughs> so, so, so you know when you when if you can kind of work outside your normal sphere and get people interested in what you do i mean who doesn't like that right yeah who Whatever. doesn't want to talk yeah. about what they do yeah. and have people be yeah. excited so, about so that's it. the real probably the real reason most scientists do it although i just probably i don't know did a very good uh, well no i'm not so very good a very l big attempt to make it sound grandiose and the reality is if somebody will listen to me, then then that's quite nice, right? So, well, now you got a microphone. That, yeah, too, exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, there's nobody listening though. <laughs> well, we don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. I'll get you the numbers yeah, once yeah, it goes exactly, up. Exactly. Yeah. But but no, but I think that you know. So I think that's the But I mean, it's it's true of every walk of life, right? If you're interested in soccer, you want you're happy to talk about it and get other people interested in it. If you're interested in whatever, right? So mm -hmm. I think I think what most scientists do, and, and I think science is a very peculiar thing because it's very. Uh, specialized and so it's very easy to feel that you're disconnected if you don't engage in some of that right mm -hmm. yeah or i mean i mean the the classic thing that you hear from science you know people listening to scientists or whatever is that they don't they don't know how to speak about it in, in a yeah. way that other people can understand and things yeah. like this and again i don't think that this is you know you said like this understanding of science doesn't map to Intelli or no, intelligence no. or what it you no. know it's just it's just you're using a language that's common to you whereas yeah, yeah say pick a sports example they might be talking about plays or yeah. things that yeah, you exactly. just don't understand yeah. so i think that i wonder though how much there is still this sort of well that's science i won't understand that attitude from in the public in mean. the public yeah, i wonder yeah. because i mean you and i are both kind of in it so it's tough for us to yeah to gauge what that is but or i know it's that boring right i mean or it's boring the, the other thing is that many people when you speak to them so i hate science it's boring i was at school and you know at school i hated science and yeah and that kind of thing and so again i suppose that's there and, and then there's the echo chamber thing that was talking earlier about you know i've done a small number of these public events like nerd night which is in a pub mm -hmm. science talks in pubs and a few things like that and um, and that's great because you but i do wonder who that audience is it's a bunch of people who like science anyway right so, yeah so in a way yeah and, and probably half of them are probably graduate students from other places i don't yeah, i don't be. know right <laughs> so so we say oh we're doing public outreach but in actual fact we're in the pub talking to people who are quite similar to us so uh, i don't know but i mean i think yeah I mean, it's, uh, but what can i mean yeah you just got to do what you can yeah. i guess i mean you can't poll the audience every time and who's no, here no, and no, how no, even if it's a, a, a fractional thing and you know I, I think that's that's it's a positive thing so yeah no it's a, it's an interesting but the problem is is time right because mm -hmm. I think well, another thing most people outside the system don't quite get is is academics are actually quite busy people 
Yeah. Uh, but I, I'd be surprised. A lot of people, I don't think, necessarily perceive that. And, um, you know, the number of times I've been asked, oh, what are you going to do with your summer now? The students have gone away. Right. And so you can see my, I, I, my, my lip starts to tremble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try and catch up on all the other things. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Yeah. So I think, yeah. So I think, I think there's a, uh, yeah, again, why would people know? I mean, I don't know if somebody tells me they work in an oil company. I have actually no clue what that entails, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so if you never kind of worked in, in a university or a research environment, why would you know? Yeah. Uh, but but there are stereotypes and things yeah. about what we all do, yeah. right? And and actually what a lot of people don't realize is, is um, and again, it's that kind of outreach thing, trying to discuss and explain these things to people is, you know, people think of a professor as kind of like, kind of like a school teacher, but maybe operating in a more specialized manner, right? Yeah. That's many people's view of it. But actually, certainly on the science side, I always say it's more like somebody running a small business, but with the, under the umbrella of of a bigger institution, right? So mm. so if you look at something like me, I have a lab, I have, you know, a dozen people in the lab, you used to be in there, so there you go, you know. Yeah. So, so, and all those people have paid off grants and so nobody pays their salaries if I don't bring money in mm-hmm. and so you've got to juggle and we've got to have outputs which are publications and uh, those kind of things and, and, and basically if I don't get enough outputs and get enough inputs in terms of grants everything falls apart falls apart and so and that's run on a small business like manner right you're constantly looking for where your next grant might come from making sure papers are going out, making sure everybody's trained properly, it's managed properly. And so you're really running this little business within an institution. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't think if you weren't in the system, you would have any clue about that, right? And why yeah. would you? Right? Yeah, and why would you? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, and it's something I've kind of juggled in my head a lot too, is this idea of, well, why would they know? And why should they know? I don't know yeah. anything about what you do or what the next yeah, guy yeah. does. Yeah. And I've always tried to say that to people when, you know, when I was doing my PhD, I would, oh, so what is it that you do at a party or whatever, you know, so I'm doing a PhD. Oh my God, that sounds so crazy. That's so, and I was just like, no, 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 it's just another job. Yeah. It just so happens that I'm doing this. You could do it if you put the time and the effort in, whereas what you're doing is, yeah, building a house or something like Mm -hmm. that. I can't do that. I've tried. I worked with some friends doing that. And I was terrible at it. I was awful at it. And I knew nothing. And it's just... So I think I wonder, like... Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm downplaying it. But I feel like, yeah, there shouldn't be this mystifying thing about science. And it's like, oh, well, they're... I'm never going to understand what they're doing. And so I'm just not going to try to engage with it. Or I don't know what they're doing up there in their lab. And so I don't trust it. Or something like this. It's just another job. Yeah. It's just yeah. we happen to. No, absolutely. And actually, enjoy opening yeah. up. Yeah. Intestines and yeah. looking for worms. <laughs> She's a bit weird, but yeah. It is weird, yeah, but <laughs> you try not to think about how weird it is. Actually, that's <laughs> not to dwell on. <laughs> but but yeah, and I actually just you just hit on something else then about perceptions and things. I always think it's funny when people talk about graduate students. Yeah. People think of it as, a, again, it's a bit like the nice said professors and teachers. People think of a graduate student as like a, an undergrad student, but yeah. just more specialised or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, but actually, as you well know, being a graduate student is more like doing a job of work. 
Yeah. Right? You, you're okay. You've got some courses to do and you're supposedly being trained when actually, in reality, you're having to train yourself most of the time. Is the, the absolute it's, truth it's, of it's, it. I, right? I put it it's as the, it's like an in, internship or like a yeah. tradesperson, how they have to have so many absolutely. hours of... Yeah on-the-job experience. Yeah. yeah, and it's exactly that. It's on-the-job training. And so people do, you know, when people say, oh, are you still a student? Oh, that kind yeah, of thing. I got that actually, a lot. Yeah, exactly. But what people don't realize, it's actually a job of work which has deliverables. Yeah. You've got to deliver stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, And, yeah. and, and so it's not just, you know, you're supposed to be developing and learning during the process, but actually it is delivered. And what a, a, the other side of it is, of course, you know, if you look at where academic science comes from, the, the, for want of a better word, the workhorses of like are graduate students, right? The people yeah. who are actually boots on the ground doing the work, making it happen, are graduate students. So, so it is a job of work. It's not this thing of oh, you're an eternal student, you're just learning stuff. You are actually delivering outputs, which you know any one of us, as we all know in science, when you look at what you've achieved, you think that's minuscule. But when you add it all together, that's what pushes science forward. Mm-hmm. So these students that people say were only paid what twenty two thousand dollars a year uh which isn't very much no it's not and you have yeah. to survive on that at the age people are at are actually as a as a cohort really producing a lot of good for society right and, mm-hmm. and not getting paid much to do it right so and then that's there's a whole other thing in there right so and again these are not i don't know how we got onto this topic but but it's but it's it's really just about um the, the reality of how universities operate and research works within it is is very different to I think what the general public perceive right mm-hmm. and as, as I say it's not surprising in a way what that is because what how would you know but but yeah it, it is it is quite different and all the and, and that's another side of the science outreach right and and maybe there's not enough of that done right is to explain that right? because it's no it's not just about the content of the science mm-hmm. but it, but it's how scientists work yeah and how the system works right um, you know yeah no definitely and i mean i almost think that too like you could say that even graduate students don't realize that enough no, i mean this might true. be a bit yeah, inside true. you know baseball here for the people that are graduate students yeah, listening yeah. or whatever but they'll be shocked yeah like, I didn't realize that was a workhorse yeah <laughs> but now it makes sense don't think about it but i mean you know like because yeah. i remember when i was going through it it was always you know it was just expected that yeah. you do this yeah. And that still very much this was a one path thing yeah. to becoming a professor or whatever. When really, because you're doing this, like as you described it, on the job training, you're actually getting a variety of skills yeah. that yeah. can be taken to any number of different places. Like yeah. you're not so specialized, you know, but I think even people within it don't realize that. And they um, feel maybe like, well, if I don't get the professorship or whatever then this was a waste of time yeah and what am i going to do because i'm so specialized i'm overqualified all this kind of stuff and it's this you know it's perception i guess and how you view your time and what you've been doing and learning but yeah i mean the the skills you have to develop and anything from analytical skills to to communication skills i mean there's a lot of public speaking involved right Mm -hmm. which which many people don't get as much experience of um project management yeah, that's a you big know, one. That's a huge one, right? Because and and that can be very varied from interacting with many people to to the opposite of doing something very complex, but you know, whatever, right? So it's mm-hmm. so so all those things are skills which are transferable. Yeah. 
but you know again it touches on another area that the system is the system does have challenges though right i mean yeah. in terms of i think it's like many things it's evolved rather than being designed mm-hmm. right and so the system now is is you know as we all know there's many many more graduate students than jobs in academia mm-hmm. but there's still the perception as you just said that people going into do a phd or whatever think it's a training to become a professor yeah but clearly it can't be because only of a small percentage of people actually follow that route eventually mm-hmm. so you know and and then the flip side is the whole system depends on having large numbers of graduate students doing the work right for no money for very little money so <laughs> if you're a cynic you could say it's a form of slave labor right yeah. so and actually you know some like in every walk of life some professors are better than others mm-hmm. in terms of their where they manage those things and some like in, in any other walk of life will exploit people and some won't and yeah you've yeah, got yeah. the whole spectrum of that going on as you have in you know if you were working in small business or working in the oil industry or working in a hospital or whatever right so but you know so, so big but the problem with the system is it depends on having graduate students yeah i mean if you paid if you had paid workers so to speak who were sk- sufficiently skilled to do the work that graduate students do it would cost what four or five times as much mm-hmm. in the system so is there uh, no way around that I, well i can't think of it. yeah i don't know i don't know no yeah. i don't i don't think there is i mean i think that what you've said is 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 really uh, striking the balance between it training people to uh for things which are useful for them in their future careers outside academia mm-hmm. uh as well as getting productive outputs on the research and it's striking that balance right if, mm-hmm. uh, and i think the um you know there probably needs to be more thought about those other professional skill development stuff within the system right? and i think that's coming out there's more recognition of that i think so i mean that's i, I benefited from it yeah the, you mentioned it the host parasite interaction program that's you know directly helped me get to what i'm doing now so and that was specifically showing graduate students that there's other careers other than yeah, and that's academia. a great program. I mean, that it's the National Science and Engineering Research Council that have these six-year grants for professors to build a graduate. It's not a graduate program, but a program for graduate students mm-hmm. uh, to d- generally develop their uh, other skills outside their scientific expertise and make them ready for other careers and the mm-hmm. rest of it. And so the whole idea of it is that, you know, anything from communication skills to project management skills to you know whatever there's a whole list of them that that really beef that side of the experience up because you know probably if you go back 20 years it was worse than it is now where graduate students would just be you know quite often stuck in a lab and Mm -hmm. working away and doing very little else so yeah it's really a recognition of the fact that you need to train or allow people to develop Mm -hmm. rather than you know it's part of the training and allowing to develop yeah that wider skill set and some of the skills that we that you talked about that are you feel are important for society to have critical thinking analytical thinking you know logic deductive reasoning that kind of thing would that can if more people spread out and have that in different sectors that's not a bad thing um let's get to the fun stuff though okay what's the fun stuff 
Well, what your <laughs> your research? Oh, research. What you're, what yeah, you're working on? Stuff. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Uh, and I think you know you mentioned parasites, parasitology. Yeah. So people are fascinated by. Yeah. You know. Or, like, or repulsed. Or, or repulsed, or both at once. Yes. Yeah. I think both, it can yeah. be both. Um. So yeah, I mean, what I want to say, well, discuss with you what your your lab is currently doing, but also the concept of one health. Yeah. It's something that. I think is important and I've seen a, a, a few science media sort of outlets touching on it and stuff but I wonder if that's one that people outside of the veterinary medicine you know parasite world, yeah. world even know so I'll let you describe the concept of One Health and then maybe how some of the projects that you're working on that would fit in that okay mold. yeah yeah so the One Health thing's an interesting one because uh I guess it means different things to different people. Mm. So I'm going to do my usual thing of probably overcomplicating the answer. We got <laughs> plenty of time. Waiting. We, we were just waiting for this erudite, concise <laughs> definition, and now you're going to get a hold of what? No, 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 no. So, the world is black. It's yeah, not black exactly, and white. Yeah. So, so yeah. So one health. I mean, the basic concept of it is it's recognizing that health, human health, animal health environmental health in terms of the ecosystem are all interconnected mm -hmm. right? that's the basic concept and so uh in a research frame uh to tackle health well to tackle world problems problems that need solving then you have an interdisciplinary approach of people from those different worlds mm -hmm. so it could be medical doctors veterinarians uh, social workers, uh, bioengineers, whatever, and it's bringing all those different fields together. So it's a recognition of these integrating these disciplines to have a more holistic approach to things, and also cross fertilizing between disciplines. That's, I guess, the sim the, the most all-encompassing way I could think. But but then when you start to split it, I mean, originally it was a very specific. There's, there's certain people who believe. It has to involve certain disciplines like integrating social work with basic sciences and things like that. And mm -hmm. You'd be amazed the debate it rages on about how you define something, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's not one health. This yeah. is one health, right? Yeah. So there's a bit of that goes on. But I mean, I think the, the veterinary profession as a whole has embraced it because it places them, uh, it makes it more easy to place their relevance in a wider context, right? So it's, right. A, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good way to. To present that being that well. animal health and human health is uh, inextricably but linked, also yeah. ecosystem health as well so right. so again um you know you can think of environmental impacts uh you know animals might affect the environment which might affect human health right? mm -hmm. uh you can imagine cattle grazing will change an environment deforestation mm -hmm. may even change vectors which transmit a disease which then has a knock-on effect and that disease problem in humans which is vector-borne actually has its roots based in the change of the ecosystem which right. may even be affected by agriculture whatever. vector born uh, being yeah. like, like a mosquito or so by so changing the environment you put those dangerous insects yeah more in yeah. contact with people with humans yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. wildlife encroaching into cities and, mm -hmm. and, and, and so it's, it's just it's just recognizing those 
change is then bringing people together to do the research and then and then you know i mean the the concept's been around for a very long time mm-hmm. and, and and different elements of it have different definitions like there's comparative medicine was probably the uh, or comparative health was another way uh to put it long ago and 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 if you're a cynic i guess you could say people have been doing one health forever mm-hmm. but it's just not been labeled articulated in mm-hmm. that way right and i think it's more about that but then other people say no that's not true because we're talking about bringing disciplines together which don't traditionally work with each other like for example social sciences and the hard basic sciences that doesn't happen traditionally so this is about bringing that together mm-hmm. so different people have a different kind of view of it um but there are lots of um good examples of it um the, the one i before about and actually gave a nerd night talk on it a few years ago was uh, in 2015 the Nobel Prize for Medicine Physiology was awarded for the discovery of this drug Ivermectin right which is an antiparasitic drug it kills worms um, and uh, the the original discovery of it was actually to control parasites in livestock mm-hmm. um, and actually it was commercialized originally by Merck, I think, which is the animal, well, the animal health division of Merck. And it, it was developed as an animal health drug because there's more money in it for the company, right? Right. Because livestock it, yeah. it was, and then eventually companion animals, uh, dogs, cats, horses, there's money in, in, in developing drugs for that market. Whereas unfortunately, these parasites affect people in, poor regions of the world and people living in poverty and there's no market for it so so the original um development of the drug was for to control animal parasites but uh to much to the drug company's credit uh they recognized that and then uh, it was repurposed for controlling certain human parasites one mm-hmm. is lymphatic filariasis which is a a worm which is transmitted by mosquitoes and causes elephantiasis. Some people right, this is the that. swollen limbs yeah. that you see on in yeah. those photos and stuff. And yeah. well, there's river blindness, which is another worm which is transmitted by black flies. Again, in sub-Saharan Africa is mm-hmm. where, but other tropical regions as well. And so, it was repurposed to control those diseases, mm-hmm. and, and literally it saved millions of lives and reduced many millions of people from suffering. And mm-hmm. so it's. You know, globally, it's an incredibly important drug, and it's now being repurposed to treat things like scabies, which is a a, a really unpleasant uh, disease caused by mites in many parts of the world, and right. other diseases as well. There's even talk about using it to control malaria by controlling the vectors, the, right. you know, as, as, a, as an insecticide. Right. So, hmm. although that's somewhat controversial in terms of the detail, but the thing is that it, so so that was recognised for its impact on global human health with the Nobel Prize, but its mm-hmm. roots were in developing it for animals. So that's an example. You, you know, you could argue that's an example of One Health, right? Which is an, a discovery in animals. Which, yeah. Well, and the incentive to make a drug like that, like you said, was wouldn't have come about unless it was in the animal side. No, exactly. Yeah. 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 And that the whole thing of parasitology is because we haven't really introduced parasitology as a topic, I guess, or we're assuming people know what we're talking about, yeah. <laughs> which is again an occupational hazard. But but you know, so para- parasites are organisms which cause disease or detriment to the host organism. And traditionally as a discipline it covers really if you want to simplify it, anything outside of bacteria and viruses or fungi. Right. So anything which isn't a bacteria, virus or fungi, but which 
parasitize or something. So, yeah. so the worms are the one that people always think. Worms of. are yeah, but 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 ectoparasites like lice, fleas, they're characterized right. as parasites. Yeah. And then single cell things. So malaria is a protozoan parasite, mm -hmm. and that's considered as a parasite. So malaria. Mm -hmm. there's, there's there's sleeping sickness, trypanosomiasis. So there's a whole group of these organisms which comes under the discipline of parasitology, and and in human health generally. Uh, bit of an oversimplification but but the majority of them have big impacts in the developing world yeah and are diseases of poverty many mm -hmm. of them uh and so therefore there isn't much of a interest from the developed world i even on the academic side and certainly on the commercial side for tackling these diseases relative to other diseases i mean you can get more, more traction trying to cure baldness and trying to cure a disease that affects <laughs> half a billion people right yeah uh, some you know so so because of that um human parasitology is very much a neglected discipline mm -hmm. uh, veterinary parasitology um is somewhat less neglected because there's a there's a commercial market for it right and 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 uh, and so that makes private sector interested in it, but also because it it's not just the commercial side but because it has an impact here as well so livestock parasites affect agriculture here mm -hmm. people have animals which are companion animals they're affected by parasites and so there's an, a, an awareness in the developed world of a need to do something about them so so it's one of those fields where actually the veterinary side in many ways is ahead of the human side right and so there's a lot of translation of of ideas and drugs from the animals in fact all the major well not all but ma the majority of the major drugs which are actually used to combat major parasites have been developed as from the animal health side so certainly on the worm side of things mm -hmm. not just ivermectin which i talked about but there's another class benzimidazoles which again are the major treatment for things like hookworms and other roundworms which infect a billion people in the world a single class of drug which is used to control that in humans again was originally developed in that for for animals right. so so again there's it, a kind of trend of, of because the drivers of um so if we didn't have uh a need for you know or a market for farmers wanting their yeah, livestock yeah dewormed we might not have any of these yeah. things it goes back to almost the beginning of conversation on twitter where that, 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 that these kind of indirect effects, right? You yeah. never think, you know, how, what's the connection between a farmer wanting to control uh, or increase production and growth rates in cattle could lead to uh, saving hundreds of millions of people having a disfiguring disease in sub-Saharan Africa, Yeah. right? If you put it that way, I probably should have posed that before we did the whole conversation. Well, no, it would have no. been a much more interesting conversation. <laughs> But, but and, you know, so I think, you know, I think you look at that connection, it's not obvious, but, you know, so, yeah. And One Health, again, is, is if you think of, I mean, the other side of it, which isn't my field, but is 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 something like, and I, this is not an accurate figure, but it's gives you an idea in the ballpark that 90% um, of infectious diseases of humans emerge from animal pathogens, right? It's something like right. that, right? So well, that's like the, the viruses, flu jumping yeah, into the yeah, viruses, humans. but of, of their origins somewhere in their history from animal pathogens, which, mm -hmm. have, which have jumped, be it in the case of flu, like you say, in the last 15 years through to certain bacteria, which is hundreds or thousands of years. But, but the, the, there's this 
jump from animal to human. Well, pathogen. Ebola, that's a big yeah, one, Ebola's right? That people will yeah, know. Exactly. So so all all those so so again, controlling animal disease it's has beneficial. a direct impact and, and, and the, what's known as zoonotic diseases which are tra- diseases which are transmitted from animals to man. Uh, and obviously one health is a big um, role to play there and actually you know again that's something else when people debate about definitions you know the zoonotic disease either those things transmitted to animals to man are the ones that always hit the headlines because they're the obvious ones right mm-hmm. so flu is like you said swine flu bird flu yeah transmitting across into man um tbs and other which you know so there's, there's a whole variety of ones where they're clearly animal pathogens which are jumping mm-hmm. so and that's i think the thing that i I highlight it but when I think about it it's that's what I think about you know and I think that's what most people in the articles that I've seen written about it is it's important to control animal diseases because they might one day jump into humans but the whole first part of it that you touched on is one that people probably don't think about is that the animal side is driving the discovery of some of these things that can then be you know and I, I maybe it's weird people think because it's like well, that's a that's a pill or a drug that yeah. you give to cows. I can't yeah, yeah. take that. It's going to kill me. No, exactly. No, yeah. it's going to kill the worms in you just as good as it killed them yeah, in them. Yeah, and 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 there's other examples as well. There's a, there's in the news last week. There's the Laska Prize, which is what one of these big science prizes, which is quite often the people who win the Laska Prize go on to win the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a British veterinarian actually who discovered a new. Uh, anesthetic back in the 80s proper fall which is like a really cool anesthetic basically you can give it and then people recover from it almost instantly like you you Mm. know it's a really um, safe rapid although I think it's the thing that Michael Jackson was died from that oh uh, overdose uh, yeah, yeah, oh, right, okay. it can be abused but but anyway (laughs) side note just to note sidebar yeah Yeah. but but um but I think yeah, so so that's another example of veterinary research, or certainly a veterinary researcher producing a major, you know, one of the most important anaesthetics has been discovered in the last thirty years, right? Yeah. So again, people, you know, so people again, it goes back to the thing research on animals. I mean, it's a whole other topic. Should we be doing it? You know, what's it about? But actually, the impacts both positive for animals and humans are indisputable. I think. Mm-hmm. So they really, yeah, we really are connected right to it. So to be a bit more specific about what it is, you know, that your lab's doing, yep. you guys work a lot on drug resistance. Yeah. Yeah. And you recently got some funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation did, for yeah. a project, yeah. Yeah. which I think is should be noted. That's a very yeah. Yeah, prestigious... Well, yeah, it's it's good to have. I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> I'll it's, take it. Yeah, but it's a good. It's a good. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you this story about how we got to that project if you like sure yeah yeah i mean it's um so yeah i mean i work on drug resistance and in, in worms right and so, so how they become resistant yeah, to the drugs we're yeah, using to yeah. kill them yeah. so so basically in livestock again going back to that story um or whenever you look at animals grazing they've all got worms it's not a question of which ones have got them they've all got them it's a question of how many mm-hmm. really in this variety of species and some of them cause lots of serious disease problems and some of them just cause production impacts i.e. animals don't produce as much milk or don't grow as much and therefore it's an economic thing and actually where 
the life cycles of these parasites really are where you get feces contaminating the environment which can lead to ingestion mm -hmm. of of contaminated the worms food. in their gut so yeah so if a sheep's pooing on a field mm -hmm. it's pooing on the grass which is then going to eat that's a transmission cycle right because the eggs uh, come out yeah. in the feces and then yeah, they re-ingest exactly. them yeah right yeah. so um because of that they're ubiquitous and because of that these drugs are used very routinely to control them uh, mm -hmm. in a variety of ways so drugs are used and again when we think about food production and pharmaceutical use there's an issue there but um we use drugs routinely to control these parasites so uh what unsurprisingly happens when you do that as it happens with bacteria or even insects with insecticides these organisms are then selected to become resistant to the drug. It's just right. natural selection in action, right? Mm -hmm. So if anybody denies evolution, it's right there in front of you. You could see it happening. <laughs> it yeah. happens real time, right? Yeah. So, uh, and actually in some places in the world with sheep, for example, parasites like Australia, the, there's certain parasites which are resistant to every single drug that's available. So hmm. um, you, the, the, to, to buy drugs in Australia, a sheep farmer buys a drug, can only actually buy combinations of four different drugs they don't sell them as single drugs anymore because they don't work wow so they sell them as combinations the super of worms yeah exactly yeah. yeah so 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 that's been rife for many years and it's getting worse and horse parasites and now dog and cat parasites and the whole thing but so i think the uh and so we know quite a bit about drug resistance in worms of animals there's mm -hmm. still a lot we don't know and but but nevertheless we know a lot but in humans um intensive drug use is a relatively new thing uh so you know going back to the original things we were talking about with the one health is and a lot of people don't know this one one and a half billion people are infected with gastrointestinal worms on the planet so that's about one in four people on the planet are that's actually crazy infected people don't realize right yeah. like, you know so so um it's a huge global health problem they tend not to kill people which is why they don't hit the headlines malaria hits headlines hiv hits headlines mm -hmm. tb hits headlines but these diseases tend not to because they don't kill but what they do is they cause growth retardation um cognitive development retardation in young children they cause problems of maternal health in mm -hmm. pregnant women uh hookworms the the commonest one which is basically um a blood feeding parasite and causes anemia and so they cause huge amounts of um problems social and economic problems and health mm. problems throughout the world so but because they're in the countries they're in sub-saharan africa poorer parts of india south america and they affect those communities who are the poorest mm -hmm. uh where there's poor sanitation for the reasons we said like the livestock where you get fecal contamination of the yeah. environment yeah. you know public health systems uh and sanitation that's where you get the problems because of that there's going back to the original point there was very little not only is it not an incentive for drug companies to develop drugs there's no economic model to actually deliver drugs hmm. i mean these people can't buy the drugs so it relies on governments to have or public aid uh, programs yeah, aid or... programs and the rest of it so and, and often that doesn't happen right and, and often you're dealing with parts of the world where there may be all sorts of um you know anything from uh, civil wars to to other social disruption Corruption. going on yeah exactly so 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 those 
So drug use traditionally in human parasites, and, and these particular ones, has not been very intensive for that reason. But about 15 years ago, the World Health Organization, in concert with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and a consortium of, I can't remember, it's about 15 different drug companies, uh, all got together and said, we need to do something about this. Mm. And, and basically, there's been a big push uh, coordinated by the World Health Organization, um, which has uh, had a goal, but by the year 2020, something like 70, well, 70% of all at-risk children will get covered with drugs once, twice a year. So that's been implemented and they're almost at that target. And the good side of it is it's reduced the parasite burdens a lot in a lot of regions and mm -hmm. the diseases associated with them have been reduced a lot. Mm -hmm. The bad side of it is the more you do that, the more chance you've got of selecting for drug resistance. Right. And the one drug that they depend on for that control product is the same drug we use on in livestock, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. and is... Uh, we know the parasites of this type in animals become resistant to that drug quite easily. Yeah, so, it's only a matter of time. Yeah, so so now we're in a situation where people are going to think, hang on, we need to look at resistance. Is it developing? But the problem is we don't have the tools on the human parasites because nobody really worked in this area. And so how do you detect resistance in these parasites? And so mm -hmm. we've developed certain approaches on the animal parasites, which we're now going to apply on the human parasites to see if this resistance is developing and how quickly it's developing and where it's developing and how it may be spreading. Mm -hmm. And so that was the funding we got from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to do that work. So we've been doing it, we've all, you know, I'm new to it on, on that side as an animal parasitologist translating it to human. So it's the one health thing again. Mm -hmm. um, and we've really been working on this project for just over a year eight so months. really so really it's early new. on mm -hmm. and so we're really developing the tools and they are, and we're collaborating with a number of other groups whereby we'll apply these tools to children in these master administration programs to look at the parasite communities that they have and see are these parasites becoming resistant to the drugs or not mm -hmm. would the idea be then that if you found the you know the signature the marker you found a yep. couple of resistant worms in these groups that are receiving all this drug what then would you try and tone it back i mean well that that's a very good that question. seems like you you know you give them a um yeah hope and then take it away kind of thing yeah so so the is i mean then you get into a really complex issue about what you do about it right? mm -hmm. so so again um you know, the first step is is to define a problem before you can solve it, right? And, right. and define the extent of it. And so, you know, the the other complexity of these this area is that the drugs that are used in humans are um, because they the were developed against animal parasites are not really optimal for the human parasite. Okay. So they don't work as well as they should anyway. So if you treat an animal with one of these drugs. If it's working well, like it'll kill almost 100% of the parasites. Mm -hmm. If you do it on a human with their parasites, like hookworms, it probably only kills about 70% of the parasites anyway when, it, when okay. it's good. And then you imagine it in these community settings where everything's suboptimal, deciding whether a drug is actually just suboptimal because of what I've said versus is resistance developing as a problem. Mm -hmm. And so, um, how you you tackle that um then 
in order to decide what strategy you need to tackle, you need to define the problem first, right? Mm -hmm. So, so for example, the things we can do, which we know on the animal side, to slow down resistance, and, and one of them is not treat everybody at right. once. So when you treat everybody at once, you're applying very strong selection pressure to the parasite because you're applying the drug to every parasite there. Right. So the few resistant ones are going to be a big selectional advantage. Yeah. Whereas on the animal side now, what we do is we only treat a portion of the individuals. Mm -hmm. And so therefore the selection pressure is a lot less because we're only applying the drug to a portion of the parasite population, allowing some of the susceptibles to continue to compete with the resistance guys. Right. And so, you know, you could implement a strategy like that in human children. Mm -hmm. So but, when you select that though, to, to treat certain animals or yeah. humans, are you picking the ones that have the most parasites? Yeah, or? yeah. there's different ways of doing it and different to, and how you implement it in practice becomes mm -hmm. very complex. But basically, yes, you want to target those individuals who need the treatment. Right. And, and the other side of this, I mean, I, going off, I don't know how, if this is too too tangential. No, it's all right. It's good. But, uh, you know, the other side of this is uh, when you look at a population of individuals, most of the individuals have low parasite burdens and a few have very high parasite burdens. Right. And so if you think if you think of that, it makes no sense to treat everybody the same. Right. Because there's a few people who really need that and then there are others who actually are fine with a few parasites. right? Mm -hmm. And so the question then becomes... Is it more sustainable to have a targeted approach where you treat those individual children who need it and leave the rest untreated versus what's happening at the moment with a blanket approach of treating everybody, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so you, you wouldn't implement, to inform how important or sensible it is to do this targeted treatment, you need first to decide whether resistance is a problem or not and mm -hmm. if it's evolving and, and the rest of it. Um, the other side of it is up until now it's all been about reducing parasite burdens to to reduce disease mm -hmm. there's a big push from some quarters to try and go to elimination just so, get rid of all so elimination means get rid of parasites from a region mm -hmm. um, um eradication is get parasites from everywhere like smallpox has been eradicated right, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, but regional getting rid of something completely is elimination and global right. is eradication so there's a there's a move now to move towards elimination mm -hmm. can we use drugs or at least have drugs as a major tool to actually eliminate these parasites from region and, and many people believe that's almost impossible mm -hmm. because it's all to do with sanitation ultimately until you sort that the drugs will never do it other people believe it's possible um and so there's big studies going on at the moment to actually there's, a, there's a, a pilot project, a huge project funded by Bill and Melinda Gates. It's about a $25 million project, I think, something like that, Whoa. which is in India and Sub-Saharan Africa. It's very, a number of sites to look at, um, is it possible to eliminate from those regions using these drugs? Hmm. Now, the problem is, if if that, the results of that, if, if, if there isn't elimination, is that because there's some resistant parasites or is it because of other epidemiological factors to mm. do with transmission, right? Yeah. So if you don't even know how to detect resistance, how to monitor it, 
you can't even begin to start to explore how to eliminate these things and what may so so really it sounds like a really complicated answer why we need to understand that mm -hmm. but but the, you know, in a nutshell if you can't measure something if you can't define it you can't tackle it right and right. i think that's the nut of it and so we're at the very early stage of being able to say you know we're using these drugs it's reducing the parasite burdens uh, is that sustainable the way we're doing it Mm -hmm. Right, and we'll only know that by seeing if resistance is emerging. If we want to use these drugs as a tool to eliminate them, is that possible? If it's failing, is it because of resistance? Mm -hmm. uh, it's really trying to use the science to inform the strategy and the policy around using these drugs and and having control programs. Hmm. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in in, in a sense, you're you. Yeah. Yeah, it's like triage. We how do we pick which people need it the most? Yeah. But there's all these other factors that you're bringing in that play a role into how do we even make that decision? Yeah, how exactly. do we even decide? You know, if What's that's the, the right way. What if that's the strategy? Yeah, yeah, because you wouldn't want to. You know, if you know elimination, you really probably should be treating everybody, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. If you're trying to get rid yeah, of it all, because you've got to yeah. you've got to break transmission. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, we haven't been through the life cycle of these things, which yeah. we probably need to do, but it's probably beyond what people want to listen to in yeah. this podcast. <laughs> but basically, in order to break transmission, you need to be killing all the parasites which are putting out eggs into the environment yeah. for a period of time, and eventually it breaks the cycle, right? Yeah. Um, so if you then start only treating a portion of the population, that you're not going to eliminate it. Yeah, because so there's, there's still really people with parasites. Yeah. who are pooping out eggs and into so the environment. It's going to yeah. continue on. So, so those are two very different strategies. Are we here trying to just accept that until the world is a much better place and we now no longer have poverty and sanitation problems, we're stuck with these things, mm -hmm. but we can use these drugs as tools to manage it yeah. and minimize the disease impact, right? Mm -hmm. Or are we going to try and eliminate them for even in the face of poverty, mm -hmm. right? Um and, and obviously get some improvements to sanitation, but, but, but with limited improvement. So that's a big decision, and it's a complex decision. Mm -hmm. When you think of it, you're applying it to 1.5 billion people, mm -hmm. right, as a, as a group. So these are big decisions to make, and, and understanding whether the drugs are being used sustainably mm -hmm. and identifying where resistance is emerging, it's in this region, not that, how do we stop it spreading? That's why we need tools to detect resistance and monitor it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so none of the rest of it you can really do with an evidence-based scientific approach if you do not know how sustainable the drugs are in the face of, of yeah. developing resistance. How can we use these drugs if we don't know if they're causing resistance? Or Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that makes, makes a lot of sense. I mean makes sense to me i think you did a good job of justifying why <laughs> did you got I? the I bill and gates money <laughs> bill and uh, yeah, melinda gates well money. i mean people i mean it's amazing with the bill gates story as well isn't it because it's like if you if, if you go back to the 80s mm -hmm. you know he was i wouldn't say no, it's probably strong to say it was a hate figure but many people thought microsoft was the was the devil incarnate right yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know the the monopoly thing and the rest yeah. of that but, you know, he's somebody who's taken his billions and is genuinely trying to improve the world for truly altruistic reasons. So it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, with when you look at global health and neglected diseases, they're having more impact than, than anything 
than any government before, than right? any yeah, university absolutely. so so you know they're working in concert with others but they're doing it in a way that is you know bringing others on board and pushing mm-hmm. the agenda mm-hmm. and they're very out, they're very outcome oriented you know they're not funding research they're, they're quite as an academic, they're quite difficult to interact with okay. for, for good reasons. Mm-hmm. Not, that's not a criticism, it's a good thing. Because because they're not funding it for academics to do interesting things. Mm-hmm. They're funding it to get a result. Right. Right? We want this disease removed, sorted, controlled. What? How can we spend money to make that happen? Right. Some of it is implementation of new things. Some of it is doing the research that's needed to answer a specific question to achieve that goal right so the very outcomes orientated right so so for academics like me who you know i want outcomes but i'm also interested in problems and how to solve them in a, yeah. a technical level mm-hmm. there is this kind of thing of of yeah that's fine but we really do want you to come up with a result that's going to help us achieve this goal right? <laughs> so so the you know i think it's a very interesting thing they are very driven to do good in the world so to speak yeah 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 that's a fascinating one and i you know for especially for these like you mentioned a number of times the there's no money in helping poor people with these diseases and so where is that push going to come from if not someone who has all the resources and the will to do it you know because even governments are slow to act on that and everything else it's really it is a kind of a fascinating thing that these two philanthropists yeah. you know billionaire yeah. philanthropists have decided to take on challenges like malaria and the other parasite uh, parasite diseases like yeah it's no. pretty fast and the other the other example as well is uh, jimmy carter as well right right so the carter yeah. foundation so there's a, there's another worm disease called guinea worm mm-hmm. dracunculus is the, the kind of scientific name for it and that's a horrible disease it's spread by um it's got an intermediate host where the infective stage is in a copepod, which is like a little... Like a little uh, shrimpy thing yeah, that yeah. lives in the water. It's yeah. a very, very small organism. It lives in the water. People drink untreated drinking water. They become infected. And the parasite eventually migrates to tissues, typically in the leg. Mm-hmm. And then they actually burrow out. And, and these worms, when they're at foot, the adult, although the infective thing's microscopic, the mm-hmm. adult worm, when it's grown in, in the leg, in the connective tissues and lymphatics, basically is like, can be a meter long, right? Yeah. And, and they're thin, but they're a meter long. And, and they, they, they complete the life cycle by bursting through the skin mm-hmm. and then uh, basically spewing out their progeny into the water yeah. to infect these copepods. The process of bursting out through the skin is horrible, mm-hmm. uh, painful, um, and uh, it's evolutionarily interesting store. because it leaves an open sore. But apparently uh, people crave water to, to, to cool the... To, to relieve the burn. So they run to the water yeah. and then that completes the life cycle. So it's a, it's a fascinating but horrible thing and the only way you could treat it really because you can't treat with drugs because if you kill the worm it then has a massive inflammatory response to it it makes it even worse and then you can't get the worm out so they have this traditionally have this treatment where you put a stick and then you wind it out slowly by slowly so you just keep rotating the stick over days and weeks that, that gradually pull it out it's an incredibly horrible thing so there's this horrible disease and 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 literally millions of people even back 
you know, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Millions of people were afflicted by it. And, and the solution has been as simple as filtering water to get rid of these copper pots. And so, mm -hmm. But it sounds simple, but how you roll that out on a scale in remote regions of the world uh, to actually achieve elimination is a massive undertaking. The Carter Foundation has really spearheaded this. Mm -hmm. And they're down to, and again, I don't have the figures, but they're down to something about 30 cases globally now. Yeah. Right? And so, so they've gone from millions and millions down to 30. Now, the big question is, can you actually eliminate it? Because the closer you get to elimination, the more difficult it is to actually pull that off. Yeah. Uh, Smallpox has been... Uh, catch every yeah, single one. Yeah, there's only two infectious diseases that have ever been eradicated. One is smallpox, which is... Everybody knows about smallpox, right? Mm -hmm. It's a viral disease of humans. There's rinderpest, which is an animal disease, a livestock virus. Those are the only two infectious that have ever been eradicated huh. from the planet, right? Now, right, because this, this polio be still exists. I think yeah. people think that polio's gone. No, polio's so most of these things, are the, the, the prevalence is massively reduced, but but they're still there, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so this would be the third infectious disease to be eliminated, but it's down to the last few cases. And, and, and actually, it's another interesting story to it. It goes back, another one health angle for you here, because what's happened as we've got down to the last few cases is there's been an increase in reports of cases in dogs because it can infect dogs hmm. and, and actually it wasn't really recognized as infecting dogs and people kind of knew there was the old weird case here and there yeah and so it was kind of textbook stuff like can also infect dogs right yeah but nobody really saw it yeah but now they've got down to these really small cases there's been more and more reports in dogs so the worry is well, the, the confusion is, is that just because now we're more attuned to looking at this parasite and there's more people interested in that? Or is it because it's now adapting to surviving yeah. another host? You've pushed and it that, out of the that, human yeah, population. Yeah, it's and moving selection to, to, to do that. And if that's happening, will that confound elimination? Because now, you, and in those parts of the world, you've got lots of wild dog populations. Mm -hmm. Once it, if it really took off in that, then the elimination attempts might get thwarted. So, so it's right on the verge of being eliminated. And Jimmy Carter, who I think he's about 94. Yeah, he's up there. He's, he's, he keeps saying, you know, he just hopes he gets elimination before he dies, right? It's his yeah. kind of ambition to see. He's eliminated. put a lot of time. Yeah, energy. and he's been a really big. Well, you know, the, the Carter Foundation has been the driver of this whole program. Right? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so that's another one health story, I guess. Wow, fascinating. I mean, we've been we've been at it for over an hour now. Have we? So. Oh, right, we've been stuff. Well, I mean, if we had, if it wasn't, you know, getting late in the evening, we could yeah. maybe go on and on. Yeah. But yeah, we'll leave it. We'll cut it there, and we'll leave it for the next time. So. Uh, just thanks again, John, for having me in your home. No, it's great. Yeah. Sitting down, so yeah. I enjoyed I it. I just, I'm just wondering. I was very serious in this conversation. I think. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. We had some laughs such along a, the way. Such a rant at one point. But no, 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 no. Hey, I, I asked you to do it because you have a wealth of informa information, opinion that I think is interesting. So, no, it was great. So, thank you very much. Well, no, thank you. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And right. whole new experience. <laughs> Well, once again, big thank you to John for joining me for that episode. Uh, you can follow John on Twitter, at John Gilliard. That's Gilliard is G-I-L-L-E-A-R-D. Um, if you liked it, 
subscribe to the show, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're getting it. Leave us a com- comment. If you want to comment on Twitter, the show Twitter is at 2 brad for you. There's an Instagram feed there as well. I am at bvampairedon. If you want to get in touch with me with comments about this, the 2 brad for you in conversation series. Uh, I hope you're enjoying it. Like I said, subscribe, leave a comment. That helps us out. Um, and helps me know if what we can do better um as always love to have the freak motif here so thank you so much um sebastian abood as well for our artwork sebastianabood.com check it out um and we will see you next time on the in conversation series thanks y'all for listening